So, how many of you have ever hit a deer while you were driving? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've hit two of them, at least. One of them, like, jumped on top of my car. It was ridiculous. Um, and even if you have never hit a deer while you were driving, how many of you have seen a dead deer on the side of the road, right? Kind of the roadkill. Pennsylvania is the roadkill capital of the world. We have that distinction. We own that. The Pennsylvania Game Commission released their numbers last year, and there were thousands of roadkill that they picked up on the side of the road. Far and away more than any other state. It was not even close. And how many of you know what time of year there are more deer hit by cars than any other? In the fall, that's right, in the fall, October, November, December. And for those of you who are hunters, or maybe just up on your, your deer knowledge, you know that October, November, and December is their rutting season. It's their mating season. And so you have all these deer who are filled with a passion and a desire for one another, and they throw caution to the wind and just dart across highways and roads and oftentimes end up smashed, dead, bloating, stinking, festering on the side of the road. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful imagery, right? Well, today we're going to continue to learn from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be his disciples. And as we study his teaching, we're going to now be coming to the place where we study Christ's teaching against adultery and lust. I get all the fun ones, you know? And so we're going to be studying all of that topics, any topic that talks about sexuality or sex in any way can often make people uncomfortable, a little fidgety. But the reality is that Jesus talked a lot about sex in his ministry. He did. And so if we just skip over that stuff, if we ignore those passages, then we will never, never know what it means to follow after him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Because we are sexual creatures. And so how do we submit to Jesus as disciples with regard to our passions and desires as well so that we're not like those passion-filled deer running out into the highway, getting smashed by semis. You know what I mean? That's not a good thing. Not a good thing. Now, on top of that, on top of that, we live in an absolutely sex-crazed culture. You all know this, right? I mean, you have TV and movies which, which glorify adultery and fornication. You have marketing that uses sex appeal to sell everything, you have an attack on the traditional family that says that it's outdated and antiquated and old and, and we don't need that. And we know that porn runs rampant for both men and women. Really, it's something that isn't even looked at as uncouth anymore. It just is kind of what it is. And clothing, especially for women, it's designed to be provocative and suggestive. And, I mean, you, you, you talk to the public policymakers, they assume that our kids are sexually active at the age of 12, at least. 
and they actually encourage experimentation. This is what our public policy is. So we live in a super-sexed culture, and yet Jesus, he is going to speak into that, and he is going to give us a completely countercultural message, completely against what the world says. And we need to be able to hear that, not with only our physical ears, but with our spiritual ears as well, right? And so that is our goal this morning, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 27. And so as you're turning to Matthew 5, 27, I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, I thank you that you are merciful and patient. We praise you for that mercy, God. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, and for your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, and that we would be open to you, Holy Spirit, to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would be yours. I would be wholly yielded to you, God. And I pray that you would speak to us right where we are and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we're gonna look at this passage uh, from three different angles, three points. The first one, we're gonna look at the rule. The second one, we're gonna look at the reality. And then the third one, we're gonna look at the remedy. So the rule, the reality, and the remedy of Matthew 5, 27 to 30. And so we begin with the rule. And we see in verse 27 that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, it's very important that we are reminded here as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount that this is Jesus teaching his disciples practical ways in which their righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees, they were like the uber-religious guys who thought that they had it all together, right? They, they wore suits like around town. They thought that they were on point all the time, right? These guys were the ones who railed against Jesus. And so he begins by addressing their righteousness by picking out several areas where they were following the rule of law, the letter of the law, but they were completely ignoring and avoiding God's plan and purpose, his spirit in that law. So last week he started by addressing anger and how anger, that slanderous, bitter, seething anger leads really to murder in the heart. It's really no different. And he continues now when he talks about adultery. And he begins by restating the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You can see it on the screen behind me. Now we have to understand some of the historical context for the Jewish culture in Jesus' day to, to know why he picked anger and then adultery and all the other ones that he picked. Well, not unlike our culture today, Jewish culture in the first century was hypersexualized. And it was so for two main reasons. Reason number one, because of Deuteronomy chapter 24, 
which we'll talk about more next week, divorce was absolutely rampant among the Jews. They would divorce their wives pretty much at the drop of a hat. And in Matthew, we see Jesus address this not only in the Sermon on the Mount, and Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week, but also again in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees came and asked him specifically about divorce and elsewhere. So divorce was rampant, but secondly, and more relevant for our passage today, is the fact that it was a very, very common teaching in Jesus' day by the rabbis, the religious leaders, that it was okay to sleep with a prostitute so long as she was not a virgin and was not married to someone else. That was the teaching. And the thinking was that sexual urges were really just part of our humanity. It was just something that we could indulge in and I can have my needs met by someone who I paid for their services, and therefore it didn't violate my marriage covenant. I wasn't committing adultery. I'm good. I haven't broken the seventh commandment. That was what they taught. So it was exceedingly common for a Jewish man, whether married or unmarried, to go and sleep around or to see someone who he liked better than his current wife, give her a certificate of divorce, and then pursue her. In fact, if you go over to Israel today, and and I had the privilege of going over with my wife recently, um, you will find that prostitution is still legal in Israel today. Something that I was surprised at. I thought, wow, these guys are like really super keeping the law. Nope. I mean, yeah, there was lots of modesty when you would walk around and see how people were dressed. The ladies were very modest, far more modest than our culture. But then you'd turn a corner and there'd be a bar or a nightclub with red lights and the whole shebang right there. And these, you know, guys with their little hats and their curls would be going in like it's no big deal, right? So what was then is still now today a huge issue within the culture. Sexual promiscuity was pretty much accepted. They had taken the seventh commandment forbidding adultery and justified their sexual sin by defining that so narrowly that they could basically go and indulge their passions like the deer in rutting season and still consider themselves righteous. Yeah. That was the culture. But Jesus, he wasn't interested in their religious rules and their narrowing of Scripture, which just leads to dead religion. He was interested in the transformation of their hearts. That's what he's always, always aiming at with his disciples. We're not to remain stagnant. We're to always be following Jesus, becoming more like him, right? And so we look at the rule, and now Jesus turns to the reality of sexual sin, And he continues on in Matthew, verse 28 of chapter 5. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Now, remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi, giving his yoke. You remember that term? The yoke of a rabbi was his interpretation of Scripture. So when Jesus says, I say to you, this is him giving his yoke, his understanding, his interpretation of Scripture, which, of course, as we know, since he's God, is the proper way to look at Scripture. In the Greek, the I here is is an emphatic, which means that he is centering the teaching and the authority, not from any rabbinic tradition. It is coming directly from himself. I say to you, and then he explains it. How many of you know that as disciples of Jesus, we are called to follow and adopt his understanding and teaching of Scripture? Nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter what the world says is truth. It doesn't matter what other religions say is truth. It doesn't matter what some guy who thinks he knows what he's talking about with the microphone says is truth. We go to the Word of God, and what does Jesus say truth is? What does the Holy Spirit lead us into truth? That is truth, and that is what we are to submit to and accept Amen? And Jesus, he immediately dispels with the very narrow reading of Scripture with regard to adultery, and he immediately broadens the conversation to lust. He takes it right away to lust. And lust in the Greek, now, let me just make a quick note. Jesus wasn't actually speaking in Greek, most likely. He was speaking Aramaic, but it was recorded in Greek, so we go off of what the Matthew wrote in the Greek, knowing that it wasn't exactly like Jesus spoke it. But that's okay. This is what the Spirit of God inspired, and so this is what we have. That said, in Greek, lust means a very strong longing or desire to possess and to control. It's all about possession and control. It's an inner compulsion that so consumes us that we can't help but chase after to be consumed with the object of our desire, right? Buck, doe, cross the highway, here I go, right? I hope you guys never look at roadkill the same way again. That's my goal for this sermon today. Jesus, Jesus says that true faith isn't about a system of rules and, 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 and all kinds of different Standards that you can just manipulate so that you can gratify your, your fleshly desires whenever you want to and still consider yourself righteous. True faith means understanding what it means to submit to Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that the passions that are in our heart might be transformed by the power of God so that we can overcome those animal urges. This isn't about the mere act of adultery. It's about the far more universal problem of the rampant lusts of our heart. Just as Christ addressed the heart of anger that is really no different than murder, so now he addresses the heart of lust that is no different than adultery, than any sexual sin. Pick your sin. Now, last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Tim open up his sermon with the story of the bike ride that he was on 
and he was riding with a bunch of guys, and they saw an attractive woman running on the side of the road, and several of the other riders started to make some comments, inappropriate comments. Pastor Tim, for his part, stayed silent, didn't say anything, and they noticed that. And they know he's a pastor, so they said, well, hold on, well, Tim, what, what's wrong with appreciating beauty? Well, he didn't actually answer their question. He answered their question with another question, which is what every good rabbi will do. <laughs> but I want to answer that question, because the direct answer is that recognizing someone's beauty isn't sinful. I can say, you know what? You have a beautiful smile. You have a nice body. God has given you a great complexion. You have a sweet personality. Is there anything sinful in that? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, just, if you don't believe me, <laughs> just go read Song of Songs. Right? There's all kinds of appreciation of beauty in there. That is not sinful. But the problem is that our sinful desires don't want it to just end at, oh, you're really nice looking today. Our sinful desires want us to dwell on whatever we find attractive about that person and begin to desire to possess and control them for our own pleasures. That's lust. We see how that works. The word look here in the Greek is written in a form which means an intentional and repeated gazing. It's, it's not just a quick glance like, eh, mm, uh, and you're done. It's, ooh, and I'm just kind of staring, right? Ladies, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about from us men who so often can't control our eyes. But it's not just men. Very interestingly in the Greek, the phrase looks at woman with a lustful intent can also be translated as looking at a woman so as to cause her to lust. So, it's quite possible that Jesus was addressing both angles here. He was addressing the one who looks and stares and imagines, and also the one who dresses up all nice and pretty, perhaps a little evocatively, and wants to be noticed. Right? I, I can't do a very good girl walk. It's not natural for me. But, but Jesus is going after both here. Both of them, both of them have the purpose of seeking to possess and control one is doing the looking and I want to possess and control. One is saying, look at me, I want to possess and control. Both of them are lust. Now, I want us to notice that the lustful looking in and of itself does not cause the sin in the heart. The lust comes out of the sinful desires that have already been committed in the heart. Did, did we notice that, how Jesus phrased that? Let's, let's go back and look at verse 28 again. This is really important. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already 
committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the adulterous desires were already present in that person's heart. And it's the desires that resulted in the longing gaze which just inflamed the lustful passions even more. Sin is always, always, always rooted in our hearts. Scripture makes that very clear. And what comes out of us in terms of our speech, in terms of our conduct, in terms of what we look at, in terms of how we spend our time, in terms of what we spend our money on, all of those things are indicators of what desires are going on in our hearts. That's how it works. The heart is what moves the eye, and then the eye inflames the passions, and then pretty soon, looking and fantasizing isn't enough, and I want to get my hands and my whole body involved as well. That's, that's how this cycle works. Well, if you're like me, and you're hopefully interacting with what's being taught, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, hold on. So, if the thought comes into my mind that I'm, I'm lusting, is that it? Well, well, no. Let me answer your question with a question. When the temptation comes, when the thought comes, what have you done with those thoughts when they pop into your head? That's really the key, right? If a thought comes, which is, which is originating from where? From our hearts, Right? That thought comes, which is coming from the passions within our hearts, and we dwell on it, and we fantasize over it, and we indulge it. Yeah, now I've lusted. But if that temptation comes, and I recognize it, and I put it away, I flee from it, I take it captive, I've not committed sin. It's not sin to be tempted. We all face temptation. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin, tempted in every way. But temptation, if we are not careful, will draw out those passions that are in our hearts. That's why we have to walk by the Spirit of God, right? That's what Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And when those thoughts come, we're to take them captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, and 6, right? This is, this is how we combat these things. Do, do, we, do we see the, the distinction here and how this works? If, if I'm driving down the highway, passing some deer, and I see a billboard on the side of the road with a scantily clad woman, or if one of my obnoxious buddies who I'm trying to evangelize, perhaps, or maybe just a coworker, thrusts a phone in my face with a picture of a naked woman on it, or one of my classmates. Just wait till your kids get older until you realize what they deal with in school every day. Is that sin? That I've seen that thing? No, the answer is no. With a big proviso, <laughs> provided I have not indulged after I've seen that. If I start fantasizing about the woman on the billboard or I start staring at that phone, well, we've got a problem. 
right? Sirens going off. Warning sirens, right? Issues, sin. And that's how temptation works. It draws out the evil desires in our hearts and it entices us to let our desires control us as opposed to letting the Spirit of God control us. That's, that's really what the war is that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Do I let the, the fiery passions of my flesh control me, or do I let the Spirit of God control me? That's what it comes down to. James chapter 1 puts it this way. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, I'm not making that up. It's right there in Scripture. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right? Deer on the side of the road, sees the doe, wants to go after it, thinks about it because there's chars driving by and then goes for it and ends up in a ditch, right? This is the imagery of our passion, of our flesh. Now, here's the thing. You might be listening to this today and thinking to yourself, well, well I've certainly, I've never cheated on my spouse and sexual sin really isn't my thing. I'm not, tempted by that, so I guess this doesn't really apply to me. Well, I would have two responses to that. The first one would be, praise God that he has preserved you from sexual temptation and sexual sin. Praise God for that. But secondly, I would ask you, are you certain that you've never committed adultery even though you don't struggle with sexual sin and have never actually slept with someone who wasn't your spouse. Well, you might be thinking, hold on, adultery by very definition is a sexual thing, right? It's, it's how can it be anything other than sexual? Well, the reality is that yes, adultery is an inherently sexual act. It is uh, physical and but it not is only is not only physical it's also a very spiritual thing so let's 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 peel off some more layers here and actually get down to the heart of what Jesus is driving at so Jesus is talking about lusts and adultery and the reality is that while adultery in the strictest sense is sexual the bible gives us a far deeper insight into how adultery works see in scripture adultery isn't just sexual as i said it is spiritual and for those of us who say that we have submitted to christ and are followers of god then adultery is spelled i d o l a t r y idolatry. James chapter 4 says, you adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, if we say we've submitted to God by faith in Christ, and yet we continue to lust after the things of the world, we are adulterers. That's what Scripture says. And how many of you know that you can lust after far more than just sexual things? Right? Pick your material possession, whether that's money or lumber or whatever else it may be, right? Anything, cars, any material possession. And it's not just material stuff. I mean, power, prestige, Authority, position, relationships, approval, security, all of those things, our hearts, our desires, our passions, can lust after them. We want to possess them and control them. It draws us away from our God. That's adultery. And all of these evil things, these are in the world enticing the passions that are in our hearts. And and some of them aren't even evil. It's just that our hearts make it that way, right? And when that happens, we have to recognize that that grieves God. That that devastates our God. Sometimes we, we don't think of God in that emotional way, but he is actually broken over our adultery, our idolatry. This was what it says in Ezekiel 6, chapter 9. It says, How I, the Lord, have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. So even if we don't struggle with sexual sin, the reality is that the capacity to be an adulterer is resident in every single one of our hearts any time we lust after anything in this world to the exclusion of our God. We have committed adultery. We have played the part of the whore. And I know that's evocative language, but it's intentionally so. This is why scripture, scripture wants us to get the gravity of this. This isn't just for shock value, it's to grab our hearts. So what do we do about this? We've, we've seen the, the rules that the Pharisees made, and now Jesus has exposed the reality of what's really going on inside of us. And thankfully, he gives us a remedy. He shows us what the remedy is to deal with those passions and lusts of our hearts. And he continues on in verses 29 and 30, and he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members and that your whole body go down into hell. Well, hold on a minute, Jesus. If the sin issue is in our hearts, 
then why are you saying that the remedy is to tear out our right eye and to cut off our right hand? It's, aren't, aren't you getting your point here, Jesus, that this is about the heart? Come on, Jesus. Right, hello, McFly. You in there, right? Well, trust me, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's not confused here on this point. The issue is still in, with our hearts. In fact, we know this for a couple reasons. First of all, even if I tear out my right eye and I cut off my right hand, I've still got a left one of each, right? And so I can still continue to do all of the same physical things outwardly. My heart hasn't changed. Let's take it a step further. Let's say I tear it all out, both eyes, cut off both hands. Jesus was very clear. I can still be an adulterer. Let's take it another step further. I make myself a eunuch. Gone. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that. Because I'd still have the lusts of my heart roiling around, tempting me to adultery. So what's Jesus driving at here? Well, the key is recognizing that Jesus is very specific with what he said, isn't it? He talked about our right eye and our right hand. See, in Jesus' day, the right side was the dominant side. And it represented anything that was favored, anything that had power, anything that was valuable and precious to you. That is what was at your right hand. That is what your right eye looked at. It represented anything that you held up. This is why God says, by the way, that he will uphold us with his righteous right hand, right? And this is why Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of God, right? Now, let me be very clear. It's exceedingly wise to remove those outward things that tempt us to sin. I'm not saying to ignore the outward, right? If you struggle with pornography, put software, at the very least, on your phone and on your computer. Don't just think, oh, I'm just going to deal with my heart here and continue to walk in the avenues of temptation. If I'm an alcoholic, you better believe I'm not going to go to a bar, right? Those are very outward things that I'm dealing with, that I'm cutting off, but dealing with those things in and of themselves does not get to my heart. But here's the problem. <laughs> it's, it's not like I can just look into my heart and be like, oh, oh, well, that's in there. Um, well, I guess I just got to get rid of that now. It doesn't work that way. Because Scripture says, right, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Above all else and desperately sick, who can understand it? Not me, not you. It goes on. <laughs> I, the Lord, search the heart. God knows. And there is the key. There's the remedy right there. The real remedy 
is total and complete submission to Jesus Christ. Now, hold on, Matthew. You're getting all, like, churchy and theological, and what is that? Well, remember, this is about our passions. This is about our desires. What do we want to serve? Do we want to serve ourselves, or do we want to serve God? What do our hearts long after? Do they long after our own passions, or do they long after our God? We can't turn those things ourselves. Only God can do that for us. But it happens through taking the step, through making the choice of saying, Lord, I am yours. Help me. Help me. Help me to see what's in here so that I can throw myself on your mercy, so that I can throw yourself on your grace, that I can repent and turn from those things and live and be remade, get a new heart with new desires and new passions that long after you, God. Because Jesus, when we do that, he's going to show us. He will begin to show us what's really coming out of our hearts. And we will begin to see what we look at, how we speak, where we spend our time, what we spend our money on, all of those things that give us evidences of what's in our hearts, he will give us the wisdom and the discernment to see them with spiritual eyes. And the Spirit of God will fill us and empower us and convict us and give us the self-control and the discipline to cut those things out. But now that cutting isn't just happening outwardly, it's happening inwardly, which proceeds outwardly. Do we see the difference there? If I just deal with behavior, I'm only ever dealing with the symptom. And I will find just another avenue for my lusts to search after. I have to get to Jesus so that I can get to my heart. That is the only thing that will ever, ever make a difference. This is why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, after him for they shall be satisfied. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy us. There is nothing in this world that your heart can long after that will ever satisfy you, and you will always be left empty and broken and looking for the next fix. That's how it works. But our God satisfies. Now make no mistake, this is serious. This isn't Jesus just, you know, giving us a nice little teaching here. This is really a matter of life and death. This isn't something that we, you know, hear this and say, I maybe probably kind of sort of should consider dealing with that. Now, this, this is something <laughs> that is the difference between being a devoted, submitted disciple of Jesus Christ and being a deceived, whoring idolater that breaks the heart of God. This isn't just, you know, we're not, we can't sugarcoat this. I'm sure that you've heard some of the stories of these hikers who have gone out on hikes and found themselves trapped by a boulder or something, right? Boulder falls on arm, Boulder falls on leg, I can't get out. And they're faced with a choice. I either stay there and die, 
or I cut it off and see what happens. Sometimes they just die. They're unwilling to go through the pain of removing that appendage because it is painful. But sometimes you have guys like Aaron Ralston, and you see his picture behind me. For five days, he did everything he could to try to get his arm out from the boulder. And when he ran out of food and water, he really only had one choice in his mind. So he broke his own arm and then took a dull Swiss army knife and cut it off. Whew. Now, that's gruesome. That is painful. That is extreme. And that is the same process that the Lord will do in our hearts when we submit to him. And there will be, I'm not, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this, guys. Look, Jesus said, count the cost. We're not interested in cheap grace here. There's going to be pain. But it will save your life. It will save your soul. And I'm not going all fire and brimstone on us here. I'm just going, this is what Jesus was saying. He wants us to be submitted to him alone. No longer chasing after the things of this world. So, so you've got to ask ourselves, are we aware of those lusts in our hearts, sexual or otherwise? And then what are we doing about it? Are we rationalizing and justifying our sin? Because our, we're really good at that. I'm really good at that. I'm very good at justifying my sin. Or giving way to my animal passions. Lord, help me to submit to you more fully. Have we narrowed our expectations for what it means to be a disciple so much that we can basically live how we want in this culture and continue to feel good about ourselves? I'm a child of God. And not live that way at all by the power of the Spirit. Have we accepted the lies of this world that say, look, you just, you just go and do you. You just have it your way. If we've done these things, we are as trapped as a hiker by a boulder, and we're as filled with passion as a buck in the middle of mating season, chasing a doe across a highway. And no matter how pleasurable something may be, no matter how precious it may be, no matter how much I enjoy it, if it is taking the place in your heart where God should reside, it is an idol, and you are an adulterer. And it is only, only by falling on our face before God and repenting of that sin, asking him to help us, because again, I want to stress, I'm not trying to just, you know, show us how wicked we all are here with with, oh, I'll never be able to, no, no, that's not the point. The reason why Jesus is going through this is because he's helping us 
to see, he's helping all of his hearers to see that he is the remedy, he is the answer, and we all have him freely right in front of us. We all have the Holy Spirit ready to help us to do this. If we would just submit to him and be willing to go into surgery. And this is discipleship. This is the message of the gospel. God hasn't just sent his son to save us. He has sent his son to transform us, to become more and more like him. And not just for ourselves, but he actually invites us then to go into all the world and to do the work of ministry, of helping others see truth and see where they can have their passions finally satisfied. It's in Christ. That's good news. That's a good thing. So this sermon and all of these practical points that Jesus is talking about, about our righteousness needing to exceed that of the Pharisees, they all should move us to Jesus, not to despair. They should move us to grace, not to condemnation. Here's what the devil will try to do, because he's been trying to do it to me all week. You're going to go from here, and you are going to be tempted by whatever temptations are going to bring out what's in your heart. It's going to happen. And that's not a bad thing, because it's an opportunity to move to Jesus and to rely on the Spirit of God. So take it. Instead of being like a deer in the heat of mating season, let's be like deer in the parched and dry desert of this world, longing after the life-giving waters of our God. As the psalmist wrote, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Let it be so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.